0: Today's episode featuring Alex Goldman and PJ Vote of Reply All is an episode that, this is a repeat, but I'm betting you haven't heard it. The thing I love about this is PJ and Alex were becoming famous, but they weren't quite really famous yet. Uh, this was, I had noticed how great their show was. I was fascinated by their partnership. They were becoming popular. People were starting to notice. For me, these two guys are brilliant, Their partnership is completely fascinating. I learned a lot talking to them. Uh, I still think they put out as good a podcast as can possibly be made. I still wish they would make more of them. So enjoy this episode with PJ Vote, Alex Goldman of Reply All. Hey, this is The Moment, I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm here with PJ. And Alex, uh, who are the creators, hosts of really one of my favorite podcasts, Reply All. And we're just uh, geeking out on The Hold Steady for a second. PJ loves The Hold Steady, as
1: I do. Alex <laughs> is a conscientious objector. I also know who The Hold Steady are. Uh, Alex <laughs> doesn't
0: like The Hold Steady, even though he's a uh, uh, gigantic music fan. But uh, And I like the fact that these guys each are um, determined to stand on their poll about them. And uh, Alex said... He likes, you know, lyrics don't matter as much, as if the Holt Steady's music wasn't great.
2: I feel like I've stepped in stepped this on a landmine so very early. So this satisfying. is You've, you've <laughs> walked into the unified
0: scene, essentially, which is, we are a loyal are we, PJ? Yeah,
1: and I've been completely, like, this has been literally years, like literally years of me, like like Alex will be in the studio and I'll be like, hold on, let me just fire up the clip. And then I'll just like play stuck between stations, like down into his headphones at like 11. Um, I've tricked, like I've tricked you into consuming their music. There are
0: songs that somebody who's not uh, only about the lyrics, like Lord, I'm Discouraged, one of the song we were just talking about a second ago, which is just like um, a gorgeous uh, ballad. But so I had, the reason the whole study's come up is that um, the last time I had two people on this show, and the only time before it was uh, Tad Kubler and uh, Craig from the, the Hold Steady, Craig Finn, and uh, since then they've each gone off into their own endeavors. So I don't know what that means.
2: Uh, but, uh...
1: <laughs> but,
0: but I would say that yeah. the, those guys, PJ, who's obviously a really fanatical f- for The Hold Steady, I just felt like... N- it's interesting how teams, you guys do an amazing job of, even when you're ribbing each other on your show and on the old show, it's clear you're really a team and that you you pick each other up. And don't ever sort of, uh, even when you're taking shots at each other for his inexcusable behavior, uh,
2: it's uh, you can feel that it's uh, with warmth and love. For the most part, I think honestly, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Really? We're, we're pretty mean to one another in... in uh, work off mic but we're also pretty mean to one another on mic and i feel like i use it as like a way to validate my emotions a little bit what do you mean people will then come back to us after we have said something crappy about the other person and be like alex is right in this situation
0: <laughs> oh, oh really Your plan to an you're playing <laughs> to the crowd uh
1: yeah, I can admit that about myself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Great.
0: And P-
1: PJ ha- ha- how do you feel about when that happens? I feel good about it. I feel like like um I don't know, it's hard to collaborate um with anybody on anything. Um and Alex and I collaborate well and like the the producers on our show um collaborate re- like it it's weirdly like it feels like an actual you like can't say the word team anymore because it, it, you think about like every franchise place you've ever had to work, but like it feels like that. And I think one of the nice things about having a friendly adversarial relationship is that if you are in a bad mood, you don't have to fake it. Like if you're sort of like, oh, ha ha ha, we love each other. I don't know. I you know that have you ever seen that video of Siskel and Ebert? Um, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, and they're like so. <laughs> well, he, it's in, it's in that great uh, uh, documentary, A Life.
0: I haven't seen that
2: yet haven't either
0: it's wonderful um it's really worth your time it's uh because there's you know uh uh, roger's wife like oversaw you know was quite involved in it and um and could have i think especially because he he died before it came out i think she could have tried to sanitize it and and she doesn't at all and uh and you really feel how they tried to delineate and define their individual space within that unit and what it took to keep it
1: together also. Yeah, I mean, it must have been immensely hard. Like, it, like just the weird ballooning ego stuff and like, yeah. I don't know, but I remember watching that and thinking like, like the way it was framed, it must have come up on Gawker or something. They were like, look how nasty they were behind the scenes. And I remember watching them being like, yeah, they're being a little mean, but like that also actually sounds like a friendship. Like it sounds like they a- They sounded like,
2: like they are having a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, sort of. Like he's mean, like he says stuff about his weight and he says about him being bald. But it was like, that's male friendship. Like, it's like, there's like loving cruelty. Yeah, but you
0: can even see where they would really hit each other, where it, it hurt. Like, uh, Ebert would say something to him, like, well, why don't you finish a book sometime? And then the other guy would say, why don't you not write one every two days? You know, <laughs> and it was, you could feel that they got right into what the, each of their insecurities were. You, got, you guys don't, on your show, because you limit, I think, intentionally how much you were there, how much you put yourselves into the show, you kind of feel it around, the listener feels it around the edges of the show more than as like a
1: defining thing about the show. And that's the thing we've like talked about very explicitly is sort of how much us um, is fun and at what point you're just you want, you're just the shtick of it could be annoying. How you sort of use um, your friendship or your personality to in a way that helps the story and at what point it's just annoying. I'm very, I think I'm very conscious about it. I think that other people
2: um, I think that our coworkers tend to think that the genuine moments between us are pretty valuable to the show um, when they happen in the studio. But a lot of times to me, I, I'm, I get super self-conscious about them. I'm like, oh, this isn't in service of the story. Maybe we should cut this out. And then everybody is like, you just want to cut all, all the personality of this. Oh, yeah. Well, I do want to cut everything that's embarrassing always. You uh, mean anything that's uh, personally embarrassing to you or about you? There's a. I feel like uh, I, I'm in front of a microphone enough that I really don't censor myself when I'm in front of it, also because I have the security of knowing that my show doesn't go out live so I can always just come back and edit anything out. But then I have this like uh, little devil that sits on my shoulder named PJ who's like, no, 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 we got to <laughs> leave that in. That's That very personal story you told about your relationship with your wife, that's got to stay in.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of... Um, that's been a fight that we've had a lot. <laughs> <laughs> really. Well, so wh- when you... Um, uh, this is one of the questions that I... Uh,
0: early questions I wanted to ask um, is about collaboration, because, you know, I make movies with a, and television shows with a partner who's been my best friend since we were 14, 15 years old, and uh, we've been able to find a way to tell stories that have a unified tone, but it takes a lot, of, um, a lot of work to figure out how to negotiate that stuff, and how to negotiate it without creating a toxic environment for you guys and then for for the people with whom you work. Yeah. So how do you think about framing those conversations with each other? Um how much of it is conscious, how much do you each try to adapt to the other? And what do you think the value of compromise is versus the value of uh knowing that the the absolute strongest idea wins?
2: Huh. I think that we we tackle sort of the friction stuff in a very, I would say, (laughs) surprisingly healthy way. I mean, I think that I have the advantage of having been in therapy since I was like eight. (laughs) My parents put me in therapy about a year before they got divorced. They feel like they're preparing me for it. Um, And um, so when I have a problem, I just say like, PJ, I need to talk to you about this. It's driving me crazy. And then we will sit down and have a conversation that's like 20 minutes long, uh, usually, where frustrations are aired. And then we come out the other side being like, well... Uh, the scale of this fight is exactly proportionate to how big it should have been. Like it never, it never, nothing ever spirals out of control, I feel like. Which is, I think, a rare, <laughs> a rare valuable gift. And it feels like, um, I really hope that we've managed to hang on to that because it feels like it, it's a fragile, it's a, when you're working with anybody, like that kind of, that kind of ability to compromise is fragile and could crack if you're not, if you don't respect it
1: yeah, and I think, like editorially something that I've heard us doing, and Tim Howard, who's our senior producer doing and and Shruti and Fia, who are producers on our show. I think people are good at saying, you, you know, at at being willing to lose some fights and not all fights, you know, saying like, I feel eighty percent about this edit. Like this is I will fight you until, you know, you get too tired and go home. And this one, like we had an edit on yesterday's story where it was like, um, I felt like I was, like, making it hard at the end. Like, I had stuff, but I was trying to say, you know, this one, if if the room feels it, then who cares? Then, like, then we should do it. But if not, who cares? And, like, this one actually feels really... Like, I think there's a good sort of battle choosing all around. And we also... I know what my biases are story-wise, and I feel like I know what your biases are story-wise. And so there's a little bit of, I know I'm going to say this, so take that with a grain of salt or whatever. Mine are to overexplain explain everything... For pages and pages and pages <laughs> uh, to give things terrible titles. Oh, that is uh, that is all you. Yeah. So
0: I, I found something really, uh, really interesting in today, in the one that was supposed to have come out yesterday. And I refuse to acknowledge that it came out yesterday. <laughs> That's fair. That's
2: fair. Because
0: it, it didn't. Um, and which is a weird thing, you know, when you have a podcast audience and when, and when you're a podcast fan, I don't know if you guys are still fans of podcasts yes. or if it's yeah. been ruined for you by doing no. it. I still, I love them. That's why I do, po- I do this because I'm, I just love them. I, uh, I love great podcasts and you know, um, it's maddening if I, it's a Wednesday and and uh, your podcast is not ready for either of my subway rides. It feels on. It feels like you have violated. Like, it does feel like you have violated the Salinger agreement of the woman on the porch listening to the, the game.
2: It you does must feel be like curious every week. Yeah, you, I do. Oh, well,
0: no. Now I just know it's the Thursday uh, thing. unless, unless I, I bump you for startup. But um, I, I did want to uh, say uh, uh, about this when I was listening to the show. Um, you got. I was annoyed at the beginning of the show because I, I under, uh, understand this. Someone references De Blasio, and you say, um, "The mayor of New York." He said it, and I thought about this one. I thought, and then yeah. uh, then you, you I want to hear this. And then you guys um, say so. Essentially, the president of uh, Ecuador. Yeah, uh, the president of Ecuador doxed this guy, and then. You don't explain doxing. Yes. And I really was like, I want to, I got to get, now I know that people listen to your show know what doxing is, but I'm going to assert that people who listen to podcasts know who de Blasio is. And for one second, I felt like I was in an episode of Mr. Rogers. And I was like, (laughs) how, and it didn't, it felt to me like something you would never have done uh, before you were,
2: when you were at public radio. Oh, totally. That's a, such a Bloomberg note. Yeah, that was totally an Alex Bloomberg note. Yeah. And I could show you the email where he <laughs> And it
0: really... It. I would just... And so my question is, so, okay, as, an astu- as a listener of your show who doesn't know anything about how it's made, that struck me as not in the tone of what the two of you guys create. So how, how does that happen? And then how does that... When you then hear from a listener like, oh, that guy felt talked down to and I don't understand it because I thought we have a different kind of an agreement about the show because I'm, I'm really interested in the compromises as outsiders
1: become part of the mainstream so how, how, do, how does it hit you? Oh my god I, I, I could do an hour on like this edit. Like, Please or on do this, so talk I mean, about it. So I thought about that I was biking in and I was listening to that and I thought because we're one of the reasons that we come out at such sort of unpredictable times is we are literally working on the show up until you know, fifteen minutes before it posts. And yeah. not, not cosmetic stuff. Like we're still, you know, litigating stuff or restructuring. Like we did this one was actually calmer than usual, but massive changes. Um the week before an episode came out at four in the morning and, and like we did not edit at three thirty in the morning, um where stuff changed. Um but in this case, I was biking in listening to the bounce in the morning. The bounce is like it's an assembled draft where you can hear it um like a rough cut, a rough cut, yeah. So I was a rough cut and um, with rough music. It's like a rough cut with rough music, yeah. And you know that the levels are all funny, people's volumes wrong, and maybe some of the pauses are weird. You're not listening finely, but the ideas and the sentences and the music should be there. And so um, I thought, I thought that the De Blasio thing was a, it was a interesting. I thought we actually would have gotten away with it if it had just, if you had just said the mayor of New York, and if you'd said it in that sort of offhandy, like we all know who it is, but I'm just saying it. And because it was a full sentence, I was like, "We're over-explaining." But but we're in this weird moment. I think for us, where when we did when we started TLDR, we thought we really thought we were making something for a hundred people.
2: Yeah, we didn't think anybody was going to pay any attention to it.
1: And and the whole premise for us of what would be fun about it was that we could start every interview on the fourth question. We didn't have to do setup. We, you know, we could just assume a huge body of knowledge for anybody who cared enough to listen. And the lucky thing for us was that people who were less internet nerdy than us really liked it. And so we've sort of had this continuing problem, of like just like how much do you explain? Like where do you where do you assume knowledge? Where do you say this actually might fly over people's heads? But it's okay because it's not that important, or people should be able to get it from context. Like, like we, I, I also think that my ability to discern what people
2: need to know and what people don't need to know is really actually pretty poorly calibrated. I need someone to edit me in that respect. Like um, PJ's, PJ's story about One Direction. The, the uh, I love that story. Thanks. Shit, I, I, and it was great because I was at a car...
0: This is what the gift of your show is, right? Is I was at a car last night going to this concert, Craig Finn, Jason Isbell, with my son and one of my best friends, uh, and you know, one of my best friends is a guy in his fifties and uh, much older than I am. And uh, my son's nineteen, and I was explaining uh, shipping to to. I used shipping. I wasn't explaining it. I used it. I said to my son, "Oh, you were shipping them really hard," and um, we then went on with the. It was about Stan, and it was about Stan and you know, on on Mad Men. Um, oh, yes. Elizabeth yeah. and I said, um, you know, everyone was shipping them so hard that uh, obviously Matt had to do that. And my son was like, all right, that's the coolest. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> and then my friend was like, I don't understand that term. <laughs> and I just totally played it off, not like I learned it from your show. And then I told the whole One Direction story. That's awesome. But, but
2: see what gonna say, but so you were going to say, so like that I was going to say, that episode... I didn't want to do because I was like, everybody knows this story. Why would we tell this story? This is just common knowledge. Everybody knows that little that that like One Direction fans think that there is this conspiratorial uh, homosexual relationship between these two two members of this group. So that is, I think, the easiest piece of evidence that I can point to that like my ability to discern what information the audience needs and what information the audience doesn't need is poorly calibrated. But these are sort of two
0: different conversations, right? There's the macro and the micro um, in in terms of like, uh, you're talking about then, is this whole story old old news versus once someone has buy-in and they're engaged in listening to a particular tale that was about uh, politics, the internet, media, and if someone had buy-in that they were interested enough to to be to be in and, and I'm just all I'm saying is what I heard was this compromise, not knowing you guys, not having read a lot about you, only being a fan of the show. I that thing jumped out at me and I thought, this is why I'm excited to talk to these dudes because I don't understand how doxing goes by and they're trusting <laughs> yeah. the audience and De Blasio gets explained. And I think it's I'm not, I'm not sure it's as simple as what you're saying about. I think that uh, I don't know is that really your most honest answer that you don't know or is it is there. Is there a sense of, um, you know, trying to weigh how to continue to grow this thing? Like uh, that just strikes me as a business decision. Oh uh, no, no, or,
2: no! That was that was I did, I was not calibrated to be like. Well, I should explain who this is so that the, a wider audience can, so that this can be accessible to an audience in Australia. I I put that in because (laughs) Alex Bloomberg said, you should put this in. And generally when people give me notes like that, that are like explain a little more, I I tend to go with them.
1: And to the extent, I mean, so the obvious, like, and I think the reason like that is a Bloomberg note, but that's not like him being like, that's going to get me like that sweet VC money or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, he comes from, he comes from the editing school of this American life. And their bias is always like, let's let's build the story in a way that it excludes no one like there and and it it shows up in the way that they explain things um, which is sort of like it's very careful but feels very casual and also in sort of the way they frame their stories like because I think the reason for Alex Goldman like whether we do a story or not and how we explain a story or not feel related is because you're kind of deciding like what's exceptional or like what where do we slow down? Where do we speed up? What are we gonna spend half an hour on? And the weird thing for us, I think, is like, there's like five people I think about when an episode goes up, like just five people that I know, and I'm like, what are they gonna think about it? I have no idea if they're a good stand-in for our audience at this point. Like, we don't know. But if that's your story, I'm so glad you said that.
0: That is actually a question I wrote down. Like, who's the audience member that you're, who are the people you're making the show for? But it, because so I came to TLDR late. I really heard, didn't hear of, uh, of you guys till you were going to do Reply All, and my producer Jason pointed me to the last episode with Leah. Um, and right, that was the last yeah, episode. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't have any frame of reference for that story. And I was walking around the city, and I was so moved, almost to tears, by your connection—not just that you wrote a letter, but that your your like authorial connection to this moment in her life, um, and to what she gave to all these, uh, all these boys, and and I thought that there was nothing pandering about the way you told that story. There was, I could feel total freedom. Like you just wanted to try to really hard communicate this thing, which is I think the magic of what the two of you guys uh, create. And and I, so my question was when you you were still outsiders when you were making that show. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you retain that prism as you become the prism through which you look at things as you become
2: insiders, which by definition you kind of are becoming? That's a good question. I don't know that I, I, the only thing that has changed really, well, there's a, a lot has changed, but I'd say that the main thing that changed that's changed in terms of the composition of our episodes is basically like we've been given permission to be more ambitious and try things that might not work. I don't think i'm always thinking about like how is this moment engaging people like how, how is this particular moment going to engage people how am i delivering information to get for maximum impact and like that's why we make i would say you know between 250 and 500 edits to a a, a script before it's it's actually finished um i i don't i don't think about it in terms of um in terms of like appealing to a wider audience, I
1: think. But I do think like I was re-listening to TLDR stuff a couple weeks ago and I the thing that I could hear that was different was like the the re- the editorial culture at Gimlet versus the editorial culture of like us emailing drafts back and forth to each other is it's just it's all about um you know just as we're going into this part of the story, have we set everything up? Is everything are are you doing a good job of Hand holding in a way that doesn't feel like hand holding, and when it when when it's done badly, it feels like that moment. It feels like, why are you explaining this to me? We're, we know each other. <laughs> like, why are you like are are you a narc? <laughs> like, what is going on? Yeah. Like, did you forget who you're? Who's choosing to listen to this show? <laughs> yeah. And the but the truth is, we like it. It just I mean, I have done a worse job of dealing with this than you have. But like, there are more people listening than before and and i find it like very disorienting often like we get feedback we get more feedback from more strangers that is um more uh that's like more critical like some of it's nicer i feel like i try to actually kind of i feel like i actually get spun out by almost everything i hear like like everything sort of kind of influences me um which is not good alex is like a tank Work. you mean you still you just you could, well see it's weird because on the one hand you
0: say you don't think you have a necessarily great barometer for that stuff but on the other hand you must because that's the thing that you do right ultimately it is like it has to i mean ultimately it has to it has to sound off of you in some way that uh, that that the, the way it resonates makes you go okay this is right this is done or or that it's not right so you you must listen to some gut thing
2: i think that my great asset is that i i'm incredibly curious and i'm patient yeah. and, I, and i'm willing to uh sort of see uh a question that i have through to the answer and pj's great asset is that he can then take all the information that i've gathered and arrange it in a way that makes sense to. that makes to it the, entertaining. To, to the like really the entertaining yeah <laughs>
0: so do you do more repo- of the reporting and you do more
2: of the collating it's not even that i i think that the metaphor reviews before is like if I, if i I'm like the I'm like a carpenter. I'm decent at like making the frame of a story, and then PJ is good at like painting a mural over it. Once the once no, it's been before a nice you've, you've just
0: by the way drawn a commonality uh, between you and Adam Carolla. To he talks about being a carpenter all the time. Really, he was a carpenter. Well, he was literally
2: a carpenter. Oh, he was a carpenter,
1: that. and he approaches all of this from the perspective of a carpenter. That's crazy. It's it's useful because it is. You feel like most of the work you do is like it's totally just like, trying to square some edge. Like, it's very... I don't know if that's really a card. Is that... i do not a actually a card. No, we have to call Corolla. <laughs> he can answer that question. <laughs> he would know. You ever square edges? Um, yeah, I, I think that's right. I Like, I'm... I, I think I, Alex is... And it, actually, now that we have more resources and we can actually report, one of the things I'm noticing, is like, I think you are just a more talented... Like, Alex just... He just drives at it. He just will call everybody and he will just gather information, gather information, gather information, and like find a story where there wasn't one. I'm better at, you give me a pile of information, I can like thread a narrative through it, or I can like find an idea that is going to make it hang together. Like that part I feel pretty confident about.
0: Let's talk about 23 and me. Sure. Look, DNA testing can tell you about where your ancestors are from. But did you know it could also give you a lot of genetic information about your health and traits? Understand more about yourself today and inform how you live your life going forward with 23andMe's Health Plus Ancestry service. You can learn how your genes can affect your health. It's a lot to take in, but once you know more, you can take action now to stay healthy. Man, this stuff just totally fascinates me. The fact that there is a whole world of genes that uh, you know you can get total knowledge of in 125 plus personalized genetic reports on your health, on traits about you, all that stuff. The, the right personal health plan starts with the right data. Your health reports can give you insights about your DNA so you can build a health plan that is as unique as you. You can understand your genetic predispositions to things like type 2 diabetes. You can learn if you have a predisposition for harmful blood clots or high cholesterol. I mean, to me, uh, the, the idea that we live in an age where something like 23andMe is available is just uh, kind of miraculous. And uh, like you, I'm about to get started. Look well, 23andMe reports do not diagnose disease or describe the overall likelihood of developing any disease. 23andMe tests selected genetic variants only. Visit 23andMe.com moment for important test information. 23andMe, do it. How do the how do the stories get? Uh, and, and I just want to say, I mean, I, I like well, as I said, it didn't like ruin the show for me. The one thing, but it did raise this question, which I'm, I, I guess you tried to answer, but I don't know how you feel about it. Which is this the, that the the prism through which the early stuff was filtered is really uh, an outsider's perspective, right? It's an it's it's we're nerds, we're geeks, we we're, we're going to exp- uh, dive into this world that's um exclusive not because everyone's chosen to be exclusive but because other people won't do the work to actually like understand it and we're going to go in there and do it and then now as you're as you are part of a company like even when you say that's a bloomberg note it's like well that's a very different sense it's a different sensibility absolutely Uh, and And so how do you reconcile how do you kind of artistically reconcile it I i understand how do you artistically reconcile it and then after a little while how do you decide for yourself What's better to tell the stories
1: you guys want to tell? Well, it's funny. Like I feel like you you've said more. Like sometimes you feel nostalgic for like pre like when it was like less polished, basically, right? I don't know that I'm I, I'm nostalgic for it being less polished.
2: I just I find the editing process incredibly anxiety inducing because it's like I build this thing up and then a bunch of people sit in a room and tear it apart. And we do more edits. And we like, do and we do when where but whereas when we were TLDR, I would go out, do all my interviews, write a script, and then email it to PJ and be like, I'm going to go get a sandwich, tell and me how come, it sounds. he
0: would kind of put it, re-put it together or add stuff. And then and we, we would fight that, over And then it. we
2: would fight, and then it was done. And now what happens is I have people sort of... I have input from our senior producer all along the way, and I have input from PJ and from other producers. As I'm gathering stuff, sometimes other producers are sort of helping me gather information. And once I have all of that and I have it all together... I sit down with a laptop open, I play the tape, I read the script, I play the tape, I read the script, and there's five people sitting there taking notes and, and no one's laughing at They your deliver jokes. to me all of the all of their feedback. And it is um it is very trial by fire. And PJ loves it. I love you it. love it. Yeah. And I find it to be one of the most stressful things because
0: that that's like do. the writing part, and it's, uh, to be observed while you're writing is uncomfortable.
1: Ooh, it's it is tough. And you'll have like you'll have like a bad tape cut or or, or just like a stupid idea, and all of a sudden like ten pairs of fingers start typing because everyone's <laughs> noting. That. So why do you dig it, PJ? Because <laughs> it makes you better so much faster. Like if you can kill in that room, if you can get a laugh in that edit, if you can notice people hearing the story, if you can watch people be engaged, like that is gonna like. Like, does it make you more pro or does it make you better? Which might not be the same thing. Maybe they are. I'm, I'm, I'm
0: really, uh, I'm asking like how, because it seems like there might be a little, it's not, there's not, I can see there's not tension. In other words, you guys respect and love these people, but there is a, you know, I guess what it is is that to me, it seems to me like you guys are still on this huge artistic growth path. You, you, oh, and definitely. you're really like finding your voice. And it gets more and more. To, uh, then I think it's actually a, a great sign that like that one thing stuck out because it shows that the voice otherwise is super locked in, right? Because if something is clearly to a listener like outside of it, then then what it is must be locked, like strong. Yeah. But it seems like you're, as you're still finding it to have to bounce it against this um, institutional uh, institutional um, monolithic thing of some sort. It's still an NPR-ish monolith, but you know what I mean. Is I don't know, it feels like it would be daunting. Um, like making your indie movies from, and then making a
1: stu- studio movie or something. What's interesting is it's like, it's less, like, because actually, like, Bloomberg, Bloomberg's not like, it's got to be like this. Like, we are forcing him. He's like, I've got to work on Seven shows And we're like, no, we need more edits. Like, it doesn't feel oppressive. But, but what's interesting is like, so right now our team is Alex and I who came up almost with the exact same radio experience, which is that we worked on a weekly... I just want to be clear. The two of you, right? Not Bloomberg, yeah, <laughs> yeah, too Goldman, and yeah. Um So Goldman and I, like, we worked on a news magazine show together as producers, and then made yeah. TLD or whatever. And then our senior producer was a radio lab producer, and like a, a very good one, and one who was really instrumental in um, in like the sound design of that show. And that show is known for its sound design. Yeah. And so his way of thinking about story is totally different. Um, like you get to a similar place, but by by a very different path. And then one of our producers came out of Planet Money, which is like this American life, but a little bit different. I think like I can hear the difference in like their story rhythms. And then Sruthi, who was like a video person and was at The Economist and has been like a market place, like has been a freelancer at like news shows. And so everyone's trying to solve the same problems with like a slightly different tools. And I love it. Like I, I feel Like I feel like I get to soak up I I really like learning like like I think of it as tricks and like I I'm like oh that's how you solve that problem like now I know. And the other thing is that we have to produce at a much we have to produce just way more radio than we used to have to which is daunting and like I don't sleep. Um, right. I was going to say you're like pretty like in the therapeutic term like you're pretty actualized and
0: I was going to say in many ways except the fact that you didn't visit his kid tells me you're <laughs> totally not actualized as a human no. but like in as an artist in a way you um are actualized enough or comfortable enough that you can handle it but i relate to it because in, we're in this tv show that i'm my partner and i are making now because of the nature of what it is we had to hire our, our, our writing staff and usually the two of us are in a room creating this stuff and even as directors mm-hmm. we're planning everything that we're going to do so we're, we're collaborating with actors and with people who work with us the 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 piece itself is very far along by the time we bring people um into it collaborators into it in the editing room we have a very long time and even you're working with an editor you know it's we're going to we're really making those decisions and with the first couple of weeks in our in the writers room with the writers i found that Dave and i were so conscious of these other voices yeah. and actually of not shutting them out that it almost it could have it, it almost shifted and made us too polite to one another or and or not quite ready to like um, there was like between, you know, it, normally there's just no interference between the two of us, and then suddenly there's like other voices and things to navigate, and like it's it's hard. We we figured it out and we uh, found a way to I think it, it, it really make this that process great,
1: but it seems like it would be challenging. It's something that I think is interesting. So Alex and I like we are the way we became friends was that we worked on on the media. Yeah, I want how did so tell walk me through how did you guys meet so. Alex was an intern. I was an intern. PJ was a per diem.
2: We
0: were, which the, is a like I, a temp. I'll, I'll, I'll come to this. I, I know I want to hear exactly this, but I think it's a good moment to talk about because as you as you guys know, the 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 premise of this show is that people who uh, accomplish remarkable things like process these high and low moments differently, and what I call inflection points, like moments of transition in their lives, and I think yours in particular is really uh, um, interesting in that uh, you know making the decision to. Uh, and why don't you take us through it? Because I don't know that everybody who listens to your show knows how 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 you you had I think a similar sort of I don't want to say crisis that the one I did when I turned thirty, which was like oh I'm not really doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. So can you talk about um, who you were in in the moments before you got involved in narrative storytelling
2: and and then what happened? Yeah, definitely. I I graduated from journalism school. I thought I was going to be the next Lester Bangs. So I was going to be a famous music writer. And you and man, I I, I read that <laughs> book over and over as a kid, just over and over. And um, I moved to Texas, and I was doing music writing for a little while, and that sort of petered out. I was working at a state school for the mentally disabled for about a year and a half, and then I moved to New York because uh, basically for my wife. And um, I I moved to New York with no money and a, no job, so and ten thousand dollars of student loan debt. So I got a job. As an IT guy, basically. I got a job working at uh, at an IT company with a lot of artists and musicians, because that's how they pay the rent. But it was a job that I happened to just have a natural aptitude for. So something that I was like, well, I'll do this for a year until I figure out what I'm going to do with my life, then became five years. So I started working there in 2005. I worked there until uh, January 4th, 2010.
0: Well, so like in the, let's pick a date, you know, in, in, uh, September of 2007 or eight, what, what did it feel like to like live inside your, your body when you, you know, you're, you were trudging to this IT gig. Like what was in your, what, what did it feel like to be you then? The, uh,
2: there were some, there was some weird, there was, there were some things about it that I really hated. I really hate wearing khakis and buttoned up shirts and that was a huge part of it um, yeah you don't you don't want to you don't want to dress like dilbert <laughs> <laughs> shocking <laughs> and um the, it's, interestingly the vertical that the company that i worked for got into was art galleries and art get ga- like working for people who make millions upon millions of dollars um they just don't have any concept of how to like talk to other human beings so there were people who were just unbelievably abusive to us the, well, we were crawling under their desks trying to, you know, plug wires in and things like that. So I found that— So that feels like it might be dehumanizing in a, a way. A little bit. <laughs> At the same time, I got paid way better than I ever did in radio.
0: Um, but. Well, I, yeah, but that's—I mean, you know. say that, like, with a, a smile because um, you
2: were not happy. <laughs> no, I was not happy. Um, so my 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 wife, then my girlfriend, started saying to me, like every Sunday afternoon, when you when like the notion that you're going to go back to work on Monday sets it sets in, you just turn into a total asshole. Like you just turn into like the worst person to be around.
0: Yeah, I mean this is I this is my entire thesis on is that when you stuff that stuff down, you become toxic to yourself and to the people around you. Uh, everybody, I think everybody does. Uh, you you can't help it when you're not chasing that thing that that inner voice is telling you to do. You you. Uh, you know, by shutting it down, you think you're doing it for the other people. Well, I'm earning money, and I'm taking. But what it does is, uh, you know, d- uh, it just uh, it turns you into a, a dark, like a, a black hole, in a way, right?
2: Yeah, it was pretty bad. And so I, I was just like, okay, on a lark, I'm going to apply for this on the media internship. And if I get it, who knows what I'll do? I'm just going to apply. And I applied, and I got it. How,
0: how old were you? I was.
2: 29
0: i love that right 29 an age at which most people would say forget it dude yeah yeah you can't met an agent because it's really important to know that we're only in 2015 this was 2010 yeah we're in 2015 and you are at a place where you're you know at the sort of cutting edge of of new media and thriving and doing what you love to do so this is just five years ago 29 really at an age when a lot of people are saying okay, well, this is my life for the next 40 years. That's
1: crazy. I didn't realize how recent everything's been. Yeah, it's, it's been a yeah, You guys have had some ride,
2: uh, some yeah. incredible ride. Uh, but but I, I, got the, I got the position, and uh, I, I went to my bosses, and I said, I really want to do this. It's only going to be three months. They made it very clear to me that it was not a path to employment. If I do this, would you guys be willing to like, support me through this? Am I allowed to do this? and come back to Wait, this. Wait, what do you mean support you through it? Support me as in like, will there be a job waiting for me? Oh, not, me? not will you pay me while no, I no, go? No, 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 no. Just but, like, and my bosses, I, for as much as I didn't like the job, I really did like the people I worked for. And I just sort of, so I just went and asked them like, if I do this, this thing that almost certainly will not guarantee me any kind of employment, can I come back? And they said, no. And then I said, well, I'm sorry guys, I have to go do this. And they said, We'll give you a fourteen thousand dollars raise if you stay, and so I was like, "Fuck!" <laughs> I, and then I called my. I went out into the hallway and called wow. my. I called my girlfriend.
0: Called now my his, wife.
2: Now my wife, and I said, "You know, they just offered me a fourteen thousand dollars raise," and she was like, "So what? Who nice. cares?" Is it, you feel you're miserable. Why would you stay? What
0: percentage of your income was that? What, like, what percentage increase would that have
2: represented? Uh, I don't know,
0: twenty. Right, 20, I figured. Yeah, twenty-five. <laughs> right, so here's a
1: twenty-five percent uh, pay increase. And if you get a job in public radio, like as a oh. temp, you're you're going to make like uh, the equivalent of like thirty thousand dollars a year with no health care for a while.
0: Yeah. Oh no, I know, because my 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 producer, when he came to be, get an it, he started getting an internship, and it was before our show, our TV show was greenlit, so all he was getting was like basically minimum wage like I double. I was like I'll double minimum wage for a certain number of hours a week and he had come off of Planet Money and he was like oh yeah that's no different that's basically <laughs> just exactly like I thought I was <laughs> like, uh-huh. just totally offering him something so horrible I was like I know you probably can't even do this and he was like oh no
1: that's perfect yeah so and you're jumping into a pool of brilliant people who are willing to take that deal like you're, you're a diehard if you're making that choice to quit your job you're gonna go into there's gonna be a million brilliant like 20 somethings that
0: did you yeah. feel crazy at any point or did you know like oh uh, so you you say it you had, you had you had do you have do you have anything saved at that point do you have any like how do you, do you know how you're gonna i had a little money
2: and i i had a friend who owned a moving company so i knew i could be a mover oh you knew you could pick up work yeah right i guess so i was a I I worked four days a week at on the media as an intern and then i was a mover on the weekend so i worked like seven days a week but it was well, no, that is
0: what it t- i mean yeah that's the other part like you know you chase your dreams, but then the part people sometimes forget or why they say it seems unrealistic is they, they just don't, they don't add in the amount of work that that <laughs>
2: takes. You, uh, you can't, uh, so, but I mean, I, I was, I was over the moon. I could not have been more happy to take a job with a $10 a day stipend and work seven days a week. I loved it. I was so happy.
0: And you knew, how did you know that? So one thing people always ask me is like, well, how do I know which thing is the thing I really want to do? So, uh, how like, how did you pick that internship? And how did you know this world of, um, like, narrative audio is what you were interested in?
2: That's a really good question. I mean, I I went into—I I w- I had been listening to on the media for a decade, probably. Well, not quite a decade, because it was about—it was approaching its 10th anniversary when I got there. But I think since 2003 or 2004, I was a big fan. And— um, so I always just thought like that was that's the show I want to work on and that's the show I want to work on. And I always thought of myself as a journalist or as a creative person and when I was like working at at an IT company with enough money to to try and invest in tools that might help me become what I want to be and I, all I could think is like I just want to buy like a recorder and start <laughs> recording. stuff. Right. You knew I want to tell these stories. Right. So I started, would you catalog stuff? Like, would you, you know, like, Oh, Hey, there's a story. This is interesting. Like, were you sort of allowing yourself there? You know, there's a story that I did for 99% invisible, um, that I actually started before I ever got into radio and I had, I bought the kit and I like was calling people and I was just like, I I was like, guys, I want to, I want to do this story. And they would say for, for who, who are you with? And I was like, I'm not with anybody. This is just a story I want to do. And they were like, Well, where's it gonna air? And I was like, I don't know if it. Is. I don't know what's gonna to happen to it. It's just a story I want to do. So, understandably, <laughs> no one got. You back should have to just me.
0: lied and said you're an adult education class <laughs> in media at some college. They wouldn't have. They're not writing the letter to the dean to check. <laughs> That's probably true. That'd be fine. But so you, um, uh, you you go get this internship.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And do you know how do you how do you say to yourself? Do you, I know you said, Oh, I'm not gonna be able to get a job. But did you say to yourself like? I'm gonna just any. I'm gonna suck it up, suck all of it up. Like, um, let my curiosity lead me, and I'm I'm really just gonna like uh, do everything I possibly can to be great at this. Uh,
2: I just, I just, um, I feel like very sympathetic to the world of interns because being an intern is very difficult. There's a very fine line you have to walk between being assertive enough to actually soak up knowledge and being like quiet enough and 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 sort of studying the work enough to not be super annoying. And I just spent three months feeling like, uh, constantly wondering if I was driving people crazy and just trying to be aggressive enough to actually produce stories and, um, do preps and all this sort of all the work that an actual producer does. And then when the three months ended, um, They were like, "Well, your internship's done," and I sort of said, "Well, what if I just stick around?" And they were like, "Well, we can't pay you." And I was like, "Well, what, what if though? What if I just stay?" And they were like, "Okay, sure." So right, and it was there
0: was even five years ago, people were much more lax about allowing interns to be around than they are now. That's harder to do now. But to me, the headline of this that's amazing and I love so much is like, um, "You did just cash in the other thing to do it, and you didn't have dependence, but you did just go like, I think this is what I need to do." and you did. You're very ra- you're. You know, it strikes me you're a rationalist, and
2: yet you took this pretty bold romantic leap. If it weren't for Sarah, who who is my wife, I I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. It was only like her constant prodding to just like push push myself to do it.
0: It's a giant thing. Significant other is an underrated sort of factor in. Whether you can find uh, happiness or whether you, you have that support, I always say it. I married exactly the right person. Luckily, when I was young, and it, it, it may—I it sh- have the same. I don't know if you. I have the exact same story. I was the same age. My, uh, I didn't have to abandon my other thing, but 29 and my wife was like, mm-hmm. "What the hell? Like yeah. you have to do this now." I was. That's exactly when I started doing it. We wrote rounders right then, like at 30, because at 29 it was like. I have to go and change my life so I relate to it completely
2: well you know my dad who I love very much and who I consider to be pretty sagely and full of good advice was like don't do it (laughs) this is a terrible mistake you're about to quit a very well-paying job to go do something that where there's like no guarantee you'll have a job in the future so I mean that if it weren't for her that was the only voice I would have heard basically and I wouldn't have done it probably
0: Wow. Yeah. Often people don't, you know, Jesse Klein who runs, do you guys, are, do you know Jesse? Cause she's done a bunch yeah. of, do you know, do you know her, she's, she's
1: a, a comedian. She's really, yeah. yeah I know.
0: And yeah. she runs Amy Schumer's show. She's like the executive producer of Amy Schumer's show on television. And, uh, she got offered when she was an executive, she, like for, in just a regular job, she told a story on this show, but she got offered to, uh, a job on the writing staff of David Letterman, a 13 week contract. And she called her dad and she said, I was offered 13 weeks on Letterman. And he said, is there benefits? Uh, is there going to be insurance? And she said, no. And he's like, but your job now is steady. And she said, yeah. And he's like, I wouldn't take it. And she passed. Oh. And um, yeah, wow. the PJ's face is great. <laughs> it's the worst story. <laughs> it was the worst story that's been told on my show. And it, it chilled me to the bone. Bu- and then it took her like two more years or something to finally figure out like, uh, to start going and doing, like, and going. Oh my God! I just passed up my entire life thing for the steady paycheck. You're still. You're like, in,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, miserable, right? Yeah, because it just. I mean, I think the reason people make choices like that, which are risky, is like because it because it, it hurts so much not to. And so the idea that yes. you would, the train would come and you wouldn't get on it.
0: So all right, you you come to this sh- to do uh, on the media, mm-hmm. and are you there already? Yeah, I was. So I. And how sure. do you get? So how do you get there?
1: I, mine isn't that good. I uh, <laughs> Alex is good. I uh, I like knew I knew I wanted to do radio pretty early, um, and I was like I was like a weird kid where I really I would have these swings between wildly overrating myself and having no confidence. So I'd like I'd like apply to be like a Harper's intern. And I was like, yeah, here's a here's a thing I wrote for the school paper that's, like, not good. And, they'd, and they wouldn't give back to me. They're like, I don't know what's going on with that. But then some part of me knew that I was not good and then, like, wouldn't try for anything for a long time. But but at some point, I... Where'd I, you grow up? Uh, Haverford, Pennsylvania. It's, like, outside Philadelphia. Two parents? Yeah, they split up, like, uh, when I was, like, 13, 14. Um, but they were, like, around.
0: Which one of them kept telling you you were great, but you secretly knew they, they were overdoing it? My
1: mom. Right, I figured. Yeah. And figured. my dad, who's, like, supportive, but has told me not to do everything that I ever should have done. <laughs> um, like, sure. so I got, so I worked really hard, I, I did, like, the college paper thing, and uh, I got really obsessed with This American Life, as, like, a lot of people in radio have, and I applied to be an intern there. Uh, my. CV had like some fiction in it like the fact that I knew how to do radio Uh, there was like a campus radio show that I supposedly produced and you didn't no you did it had nothing to do with the college radio station no
2: no for how long has he told you the story that he had? I, I don't know that we've ever discussed it. I just sort of assumed. Are you surprised at all? <laughs> no. No, I'm not. And I think they When you of- said you had
0: some improv background, is that true? <laughs> that is true. Are you sure? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know if that <laughs> is true. Well, <laughs> Yes, and he's also yeah. a liar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Well, because well, I knew... I don't know. I of knew course I-, I improvised. I improvised when people asked me if I'd ever done anything <laughs> before. I said I
1: had. They weren't going to let somebody in who didn't know how to use Pro Tools, but I was like, I can learn Pro Tools. tools if they say yes and also i I applied because i was like they're gonna say no they're gonna reject me and then i'm gonna write them a letter that's really heartfelt asking like how to get the job and then the next time i apply i'll take that advice and they'll feel bad for me which would not have been true like nobody cares um not that much and but but i got it and so i paid somebody at the college radio station in beer and they taught me pro tools i think they kind of knew like the person who hired me was like um she said ira said don't be lackadaisical about learning Pro Tools. Right. So I think you're um, a literalist and you're a fabulist. Yes.
0: Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, you can, I was gonna say pessimist, who is it, like a question, pessimist, optimist, that's the little, that's clear you both have both of that, but it's, uh, it's
1: literalist, fabulist, um, in the storytelling and stuff. Yeah, and pessimist, optimist, it's like, actually that's sort of, you know, we trade off, but I know where we are on each. Uh, the, the likelihood of you guys both, it's obvious if you both listen to the same bounce
0: I mean you'll say it sucks and you'll say it can be great and then no. you switch or what No Alex really? usually feels
2: good about stuff and You I, do? It's funny the only thing that I feel good oh, about I got it that is, one our, wrong. is our radio show. I feel bad about everything else. I feel like bad about is going to th- be Mad Max times. I think that the world is is pretty pretty grim but I do
1: generally think that we're like on the right track. And I never think the show's good, but <laughs> feel good about, like, the world mostly. It's just this inversion there for whatever reason. But so you, you get the job. I got the job. I dropped out of college, which my dad was like, don't drop out of college. That's crazy. Where were you in school? McGill. In yeah, Canada. Canada. Yeah. It was fine. I wasn't a great student. I knew I wanted to do this thing, and I knew what an opportunity it was, and I knew they weren't going to, like, wait for me. And so I didn't mention that I was dropping out of college to take it to them because I was worried they'd be, like, upset by it or something, or that they, like, would... They they wouldn't have cared, but I didn't want to give them the option of caring. So I went down. It was the greatest. You know, was this mid year? Um, you were like in your third year of college. I was so I was supposed to do five years. This was the other thing. I was supposed to edit the school paper. So you intentionally hold back credits your fourth year because mm-hmm. it's a full time job. And so I got the position. Oh, you were
0: the editor in chief of the McGill newspaper. I would have been.
1: And then I had to email everybody and say that was the other thing my dad was like that's like that's a huge job i mean that's a huge journalistic calling card too yeah and he was like that's the best that's the best college people don't know
0: i'm gonna do the de blasio thing because most of (laughs) the listeners are here which i'm just gonna call over explaining at any time on my show from now on but um that uh mcgill's the best college in canada it's like the harvard of canada so you were that job as the um editor of that
1: paper would be a big journalist calling card if you wanted to do something and but I would have been terrible at it I knew I was gonna be bad at it I didn't like the I didn't like doing the kind of work that that work was like yeah that's structure and organization and, and news like straight news reporting and yeah managing people none of those
2: things PJ has particular aptitude for
1: no <laughs> um, so I knew I knew and I went down and it was great and I just soaked it up and I like stayed late and came in early and like went in on weekends and just like tried to watch everything Um I don't know. That was really good. And then when I yeah, so how did you guys? So what happened where you guys came together? How did you meet? When you started, I didn't like you because I thought you were going to take the job that I was trying to get. Oh, that's fair. Because I was still like being auditioned or whatever, Uh, and you were willing to work for free.
2: Yeah, Uh, well, Well, he was
1: working for free. Yeah,
2: Um, PJ and I were sort of the two lowest people on the totem pole when I got there, and uh, I think that our collective anxiety at the quality of
1: our work. Brought us together. Hey, your first day, did you go khakis, button-down shirt? Oh yeah. Okay, totally. Good. totally. I remember your like office sweater. Like you had like a professional <laughs> office sweater, and then like you got comfortable and like dressed like yourself. it. How long did about, it take? Yeah, how about long? a week, maybe. <laughs> and then you were like, "Wait, I don't have to do this anymore." I, well, the thing is that like, for those
2: of you who can't see me because I'm on the radio, I dress like kind of a scrub, a t-shirt and jeans every day if I could, and. uh I think that there's generally just a better fashion sense in public radio than I have. So I walked in and I was like, well, these people look kind of nice. Should I keep wearing this button-down shirt? Because it's a little
1: nicer than a T-shirt. But after a week, I gave up the ghost on that. <laughs> it wasn't worth it. But we were, I mean, the nice thing, the reason I think I have less anxiety about, like, working with a bunch of people is that we backstopped each other a lot in that job. Like, I was, I had a lot of ideas, but was really scattered. And I wasn't. I was like like it was not like oh these two kids are great they're going to be great producers and one day they'll make like a good podcast it was like we were both sort of trouble employees and I think at, when you came on especially like I was really struggling and struggling in what way what do you mean I would the, so your job would be come up with two ideas for interviews this week and then book the guest and then, for,
0: for interviews
1: um, that the host uh, would uh, do that the host would do based on the thesis of that episode they would say no it or just, just any anything like I read a great article in the New York Times where okay. I have this theory based on what I saw in the news what if we did it and I could come up with tons of ideas like I could come up with like four or five in a week but I would always like basically leave some tea uncrossed and Oh, in a weekly show where everyone's really anxious, like nobody's like, "Great, you screwed up more things." <laughs> <than> <laughs> no, y- right? No, that
0: just actually makes them right. You, they just go. And, you know what? I'm going to go to uh, that person. To this. she'll do that and she'll kill it, and then I can forget this guy. And, he'll, and then that's an uncomfortable spot. And where were you at that time? In this, uh, were I you didn't... doing the same job?
2: Yeah, we were all we were all doing basically the same job. I mean, but you I... weren't leaving many T's uncrossed. No, but at the same time. I, I don't think that I was quite as good at pitching or as creative as PJ was. Right. I think that I remember early on, we would, uh, we would send each other emails and I'd be like, Hey, I know you're struggling this week. I have a pitch that will work. Pitch it in the, pitch it in the meeting. So, oh, that's so
1: cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so he would, yeah, we just, it was, we filled in each other's weaknesses a little bit. And so that
0: feels you were like Rocky and Adrian, you filled each other's <laughs> gaps.
1: <laughs> Yeah. That's uh, a little creepy.
0: <laughs> That's from the movie Rocky One, which came out in oh, 1976. It's, a, it's about an American story called boxing. It's about, yeah. <laughs> and it's a film about boxing. <laughs> a film. <laughs> and, and it, well, yes. And uh, yeah. what a film is, is... Pictures uh, that are shown at 24, 24 frames. 24 frames. And we don't use film anymore. It's uh, mostly digital. <laughs> now, a frame is... Uh, sorry that we de Blasioed. <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> it was worth it for that. I now want to go back. You know
0: that, that someone's going to play no, no, yes in like five years about what the term "to de Blasio"
1: means. Do you know that's what you guys
0: should do. You should call. You should call Bloomberg in and play no, no, yes
2: about de Blasioing
1: right now. You should put that on a show. If he's so fun to, he's so. He wouldn't know. He wouldn't know. And he's so smart. It'd be so fun to yeah, shame. He's,
2: him. And he's
1: game for. for if if you were like, a pod to be shamed. If you said, it, like, a too. podcast host said, that those people shouldn't
0: have de Blasioed. <laughs> and then you'd be like, you know, yes, yes, no. And then it would be great. And then we'd you could play him the clip. Explain it to him. You could play the clip. It would be exciting for yeah, everybody. It's not a bad idea. Let's give it a shot. Um, uh, uh, Heywood, he'll take it with humor and a plum. And he's been on this show, so he'll know.
1: I listened. I, I liked that. One a lot too. I, felt like there, I feel like I know a lot about that guy and I feel like I learned stuff in that one. Yeah, I'm very interested in
0: what he, I think the business that you guys are, that he's put together, it's really, I hope, I'm rooting so hard. Thanks. For it to win. <laughs> so I want to, I know you guys are too, but I want so I want to get to that, which is, so how do you decide, okay, I really like this guy. We're going to decide to work, really work together and try to put together a show. Uh, there was a, the two of us. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a well because we got to go there before we get to how you decide to leave and go to <laughs> uh, Gimlet which I, I want to get to.
2: There was a story pitch contest at WNYC. There was a contest for a, a show pitch contest. Show pitch contest. Excuse me. Anyone in the in the station, whether they were in underwriting or manning the listener services phone lines or a producer, could pitch a show. And they said they got something like seventy entries. Um, we made it to the final five, and then we did not win. The winner was Anna Sale, Death, Sex, and Money. Well, she came up with that hell of a concept. Yeah, she, she really, really did. did. No, I mean, she nailed it.
1: Yeah. She did. And she's also that. she, she somebody, I think, where they knew. They
0: were
2: like, she can, yeah, do, no, no, yeah, she yeah. can do that. Right. Yeah, she can do it. Right. Yeah. It's almost unfair that she's competing. Like, she could have just gone to them and pitched the show. <laughs> <you know? laughs> they were like, oh, a, a, someone who has on-air experience, who has, has like demonstrated talent. like a ta- talent and has presence on the radio yeah okay sure we'll hand her this
0: also that show comes out I mean that show came out of the box the first three episodes of that show were just like well that's perfect yeah that's a perfect 30 minutes of audio content it's so unfair (laughs) no I mean she just really did crush it I know Uh, crushed it um it's still really good but that beginning I mean it's hard to sustain things but the beginning of that show because you, you also feel she was able to stack episodes in the beginning
1: right yeah <laughs> no you, you know which is a no, different I thing no I know I know and we've never yeah. You haven't been able to do never it never really stacked episodes but um so <laughs> yeah but uh
2: we didn't win and then our boss came to us uh, a couple months later and said hey you know that thing you did that you didn't win could you do it with no money and we said well what does that mean no money are we allowed to book studios and she said yes but like you you're not going to you don't get you're not going to get resources you're just- no production resources
1: yeah and then the other part of it was like i had made i was really burnt out on producing and i had made this pitch where i said like how long are you there for 5 years okay but, but and you
2: well Oh, the, we started it in we started it in the fall of 2013. So it had been three
0: So years. 3 years of you hanging on, keep getting the
1: job and all that. So okay, so you were getting burnt out. Yeah, and so I I had said like, can I just do something else? Like I our website got decent traffic relative to the size of our show and so she our boss had wanted me to blog, to do like a daily blog. And so part of the deal is if I did the blog, it was that was sort of like the carrot and the stick. Like if I blogged every day, two or three posts a day, we could put this thing out. And the thing wasn't supposed to be it was just supposed to be like something we were allowed to do. It wasn't for anything.
0: Were you already report like doing reporting on on the media?
2: We had done a couple. I think between the two of us, we'd done one or two pieces. I did You'd a
1: terrible p- piece cow and, and an okay one. You Calculator done, was alright. And you, happy, happy birthday. birthday. Yeah. And I had done a one about hackers and one about the Boston bombing
2: thing. I did one about hackers. I did one about cyber warfare. So like we'd done like t- one or two.
0: And Alex, were you were you? Um, like noticeably happier,
2: you know. I would say yes for a while, and then I was in a really serious bicycle accident, and that kind of screwed me up for well, sure for a, about a year. And then we got this opportunity, and it kind of put me back. So that lifted,
0: yeah, yeah. That lifted you, yes. So you get the opportunity um to make. What did they
1: say? How many? Like, were they like, go make one? They said they you have three, three months. months. Yeah, and they there was no at first like. We would kind of be like, "Oh, can we put the podcast out in two weeks?" And we're like, "Yeah, yeah." Like it wasn't. It wasn't like you get X amount of episodes. It was like blog for three months. We'll see what the web traffic is like, and, and then we'll discuss. Oh, the podcast. Wait, blog <clears throat> for three months, and then
0: were you also putting podcasts out during the blogging at yes. the beginning? Yes. Oh, so you were able to every couple weeks or every how often were you putting them
2: out? Uh, very irregularly. Sure. I mean, w- one of the 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 blogging was really what was attractive to WNYC, so they weren't super stringent on how often we put our podcast out so what we would do is we would um, I was still working full time on, on the media PJ was blogging full time and then in these sort of spare moments we would record stuff and we were putting out one a week with you know a couple weeks off here and
1: there yeah
2: yeah um,
1: yeah that's crazy it is crazy
0: <laughs> and, and how many hours do you think you guys were working a day at that time
2: I would say that I, I don't know. Or about, a week. Like, you know, how many hours a week? It, it, initially, we weren't working so much. I think as time went on, we started working 60, 60 hours a week.
1: Yeah, it's worse now than it was
0: then. Sure. Well, now you have this endeavor that you really is all yours in a way. Right. So it's uh, I can understand that. So you you start doing it, and then how quickly did you realize... Uh we have an audience. Like, I'm listening, a big audience. How, to you're oh, we actually, there are people
2: that are really want to engage in this conversation with us. I think it was when, I think it was our
1: 10th and 11th episodes, which are the ones that people sort of remember. I saw Alex at a Christmas party and Bloomberg, and he said, he said like, oh, I've been listening, and I really like it. And I thought he was lying. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. And then I made him, he took out his phone, he's like, I can show you. And I was like, yeah, show me. And he literally opened his podcast app and like, it wasn't just that he had it downloaded. It was that, like, the, you know, the, the like, blue flag. dot was not there. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, that was, like, a thing. Um, and hearing from people that, like, because when you're in public radio, there's only a few shows that do narrative journalism. And so you're constantly, like, you're, like, all right, every six months I'm going to pitch this American Life. And, like, I'm going to try to pitch them something really good. And those people are super nice and super approachable. But you kind of don't, like, waste emails with the people that you're hoping to pitch because... It's you know, you're scared. And they started like friends of mine who worked there were like saying they liked the show.
0: And and when when you guys came up with the concept for the show and, uh, you know, a show about the Internet, did you know that it would be a Trojan horse for a show about human emotion and uh, sort of human emotion processing uh, the unknown or the different? The
2: pitch that we had was ridiculous. The it was pitch was so dumb. like the pitch was like it'll be like a weekly. It'll be like a new show that will be responsive to the to the to things that are going on, and we'll put it out sometimes three times a week, and sometimes no, not at all. And it like didn't make any sense.
1: Like the pitch was really bad. The pitch wasn't like the pitch. Yeah, whatever the show ended up being, the pitch did not suggest. So when we actually started making episodes, it just kind of became because the stuff we wanted to do. Like the first three episodes were like. A weird prank, and the person who was a victim of it. A guy who was like decoding his dad's, his dad who had died, like jokes he left behind, and then the typewriter guy, the guy who has became sort of a meme, and people yes, really, really. And your unique, and the guy who never used the internet. That right. was like where I started to feel like, oh okay, like maybe we. Know you found your doing. voice,
0: and you knew what the thing you wanted to do. So, how did you, um, how did you make the decision that? together you were going to leave and embark upon this thing you guys are both thinking <laughs> each other like are we going to tell the truth you might as well <laughs> nobody listens to this show it doesn't matter i've used that on people um or the people who are still hanging in with us
1: here an hour into the show they like you already.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was like um it was Alex had talked to us about Bloomberg. Yeah, that he was starting the American Podcasting Company, as it was called at the time. And you know, if it got off the ground, would he be interested? Would we be interested in in trying to do something over there? Um, and it was weird because when we first started making it, we made it like at exactly the moment, totally out of dumb luck that suddenly there were podcasting companies, um like Romans thing and and maximum fun was coming up more. and they were just like, the idea that you would leave didn't exist they, when we started. That. Sure, yeah, um, there, there, there was no, of course there was no panoply. there was no no, I mean, look, I did I did this podcast for a year
0: and a half for just totally for free and without any thought of any of it. Not obviously, I left Grantland and came to um, Slate, so I understand that part of. But together, you guys, the, the you know, um, it had been such a life changing thing for both of you. What the that other you know that other place so what what made this seem exciting or worth doing i mean was there did you think you'd have more control over what you did creatively did you want to just collaborate with these people did you Uh, want the chance to be entrepreneurs
2: maybe it's i don't i don't think it was the entrepreneur thing but definitely the other two i think that we 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 have a stake in the show that we make now like a financial stake we are um we have sort of more control and we have the opportunity to work with Alex Bloomberg and we also just and this is something that I totally understand but everybody at a gigantic public radio station is fighting for resources and they have to figure out how to allocate them and um it just didn't seem it seemed and it's really difficult to figure it for a station to figure out how to allocate the resources. And it just seemed like we were not, uh, they they weren't interested in, in giving us too much in terms of resources. And I get it. Like, I get that, it, I don't, I'm not, this isn't sour grapes talking. This is just like the fact of working in a place with 150 employees with a rev, with like $55 million coming in every year. Sure. Things like that. So we had the opportunity to go from being this tiny show that was started as a lark Uh, on a whim at a huge station to being the one of the launch shows of a podcast network and sort of that a podcast network that was started by a former This American Life producer. And it would really put us out in front of people that we were not that we would. Amazing
0: that you still uh, define him that way after all the trouble that got you guys! I oh don't. my God!
2: <laughs> <But> <laughs> it is true. But he,
0: he no, and I. He's Alex. I do think Alex Bloomer is one of the great people at doing this. I love, I love his work. Uh, I think he's um uh really like incredible at narrative
1: storytelling. So I get, I get all of that. Were you, were you? Well, I think just the other thing was that we, you know, we would send out drafts of stuff we were working on that was tricky to friends, and we'd get feedback that way, but. The idea that you could be, I don't know, for whatever reason, things felt more siloed there. So I had friends who were brilliant at radio and I talk to them and, and sometimes even play them tape of, you know, I'm like we're trying to work through this and we seem stumped or like, do you think this idea sounds good? But like, I think you can make, I think maybe not in general, but for artistic stuff, if you completely make your career decisions on, do I want to be in this room? Like this editorial room. Do I like the way people express ideas and the quality of ideas? 100%, man. And that seemed like it was going to be a good room. You could just kind of tell. And do you both feel good about it now? Yes. Oh my God.
0: We. I, I. There's just one more thing that I want to cover. Um, do you guys, uh, do you um, understand one another? So the running joke on the show during their, their ads was that Alex had a baby and PJ didn't go visit the baby for a long time. And... Um, do you each understand the other's position in this cuz I've have, I have some theories about it. Um do you understand why his feelings would be hurt about it?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Just yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: But do you understand do you remember though that before you have it cuz I have two children and a uh, 19-year-old and a 15-year-old. For me the world's binary like before and after. I couldn't understand I would have been him before. So like do you can you understand why somebody wouldn't actually know like why your closest friend wouldn't would wouldn't really be able to kind of grok um, you wanted to find Grok, which comes from a Douglas <laughs> Adams. Uh, uh, it's uh, Robert Highland. Oh, Rylan or Robert Hyland. Fine. There you go. Robert Hyland. <laughs> that <laughs> um, was like a good. lightsaber battle. <laughs> that was great. No, he won, the, he won the battle. I won the war, but he won the battle. But even, because I baited him into actually de- defining it. When what you should have done is let that be out there so I would get trolled. And now I won't. But so, but can you understand why somebody who doesn't, uh, who's
2: single oh, absolutely. and doesn't have a kid. Would... Absolutely. And it, it's not just that. It's like, we happen to, I happen to have a baby at the most inopportune time in terms of our workload and the stress level. And I live in New Jersey and he lives in Brooklyn. And so it was, there were a lot of precipitating factors. I had taken four weeks off and he was continuing to produce the show. So I totally get why he didn't come to, to see my son for two months. I just wanted to put it in those stark terms so yeah. that everybody knows how terrible you are.
1: Yeah, I was on the train and I saw a friend of mine who's a lot, who's really funny. He's a comedy writer, and he and I, he was like, "When are you going to visit the baby?" And I was like, "We're getting really good ads out of it." And he was like, "Sometimes you got to let the joke go." Yeah, (laughs) you got to let the joke go. Well, we're going to
0: let the joke go. Um, I wanted to say, people, um, the uh, the episode these guys did a two parter recently. First of all, you should listen to all the episodes of this show. It's uh, my favorite podcast right now, uh, and. uh, it's invest in this two-parter, and I would just say I'm going to recommend a podcast that's not theirs. You should do this podcast um, at the and and then also do the Love and Radio episode about uh, the Hasidic guy um, and Arab. I don't know if you guys heard it. Yeah, I think I it's a staggeringly that. great.
2: Yeah, it's not it's it's a couple months old, right?
0: Yeah, maybe six months old, but it I is not to miss them. It's um it's about and it's it's it starts with an exploration of the Erev. And it's what like that means—it's like a radio means, producer
2: trying to, f- to. She's like, I heard about an era of. I'm trying to find the. But
0: Erev. then what happens is it's a it's a phone call. All it is is three years of phone calls between her and a guy like your guy, but a, who stayed in and is trying to understand the world beyond and and use and she's his only lifeline to it. It's a stunningly good half hour of radio. Blow that your sounds mind. Amazing. Yeah. So you. But I will say that um, the way these guys um, are able to tap into. Uh, the way you guys are able to tap into emotion and, and take this stuff that could be intellectual um, and could be um, presented in a very antiseptic way and you know I thought like I'm an atheist uh, culturally a Jew and when the way you ended the, the the second part of the two-parter with that song was I thought like um, a glorious thing and uh, really uh, just did the thing that only this kind of very old but now new form can do and so um but you know please keep doing it don't uh kill each other and uh <laughs> don't um if i can just say one thing being a slightly older person who's done this stuff for a long time don't uh, compromise when your gut tells you not to compromise other than between the two of you don't listen to those other people who don't know better than you yeah they really don't they just have some experience they're really good at it but like you two know what the show is supposed to be
2: Wow, that's deep.
1: I I'm, that That's giving me a lot to chew on. <laughs> <laughs> oh. If you could have heard the last week of us yelling at each other. <laughs>
0: no, you two know. Believe me, you guys know. And the one thing you hate, the one thing I hate is looking back and the times that I relied on supposed experts to make an edit that I shouldn't have made, as opposed to the people who I knew knew in that instance and I should have listened to. Those are the only things I regret. I've had big successes and big failures. And as long as the failures were because... Those things served the creative vision that Dave and I thought was right. I've never regretted them. I only regret them when I was like, I made that compromise because I thought that person knew and they didn't know. So, uh, you know, that's it. Thank you. You can find me at Brian Koppman on Twitter. These guys are on Twitter under their, their names too. He's at A Goldmund. A G O L D M U N D. His Twitter feed is garbage. Uh, at PJ Vote. Guys, thank you. Listen to Reply All. PJ Vote, uh, Alex Goldman, thank you guys for being here. And uh, the Hold Steady are really like uh, one of the best bands in the world, aren't they, PJ? Yes, they really are. All right, thanks everybody. See you next time. Bye.